Well, good evening, good evening. It's great to see you all. Tonight, I'm very excited about the word I'm going to bring. I've got some gentlemen who are bringing out some props for us, uh, which will be very helpful. But I've just got one thing to do. I'll be back in a sec. They say, when you're in the best of company, dress your best. And my mum's here tonight and she bought me this jacket and I'm very excited to wear it alongside my Star Wars shirt. Some things I, I love very much and I feel like this jacket's probably anointed so it'll help us do something pretty exciting tonight. I uh, can't wait to show you guys what I've got going on up here. Uh, you know, they say... People love it when you bring something that they like to see onto stage. So I brought a mirror so you can see yourselves. And uh, I was just was thinking today about how great our church is and the people in our church. After all, the church is not a what, the church is a who. And the church we got are some pretty awesome people. And I think about some of the HSC students right now who actually made time in their busy study schedule, some of them doing their exams, actually be here tonight. So you guys are awesome. Great job. And um, even some young people come at the end of a really big week from school and they're like, I don't want anywhere to be except Friday night church. And I tell you, some of our young people, they are like top of the cream, corn of the crop. They are some awesome young people and they stand out in their school and they're really cool. I'm also really excited because one of my ex-scripture students is here tonight. She's seen me do scripture and now she can see me at church. I'm really excited. You know, Friday nights are pretty important. In fact, it was in this very room on a Friday night that Bethany and I started noticing each other. So, yeah, pretty exciting. And he started talking, getting chatting. It's actually a really great place for if you're looking for a relationship, you don't have to dive in straight away. You can actually get to know people, get to know if you want to invest time and energy into them by speaking to them out the front here, you know, bring out something like, yeah, what, how do you think worship was tonight? Oh, yeah, it was pretty good. You know, you get to know them. Just that's some tips for you guys out there. Now I say that, I bet there'll be no boys or girls talking to each other tonight. It'll just be a divide. And, you know, Bethany and I, when we started getting to know each other, I remember when we were first exchanging text messages. I know. And I, I remember writing out a thought-out message, a really carefully thought-out uh, message, not too romantic, not too full-on, but also not too not romantic if you know what I mean I kind of want to leave those hints here and there and then you got to pick out the right right emoji you send the right emoji send it her way you see the little sent icon and your heart jumps and then for the next the next however long your heart is beating at an unnatural pace and you're thinking oh gosh when's she gonna message me and your phone you got it in your hand the whole time just waiting for that vibrate until she answers and then finally you get the message back and your heart rate skyrockets and then stops. You look at the message to see that she's doing great, thanks. 
And uh, then you proceed to all, uh, then again work out the next message you exchange. And before you know it, you two are onto a great, uh, me- a great message sharing, uh, texting, and uh, uh, very soon you're speaking about what you had for breakfast. And it gets really exciting. And, and I remember thinking back this time, and any of you married couples probably know what I mean. Um, or any of you couples might know what I mean, at the very beginning stage of your relationship, those text messages are some of the most precious things you could ever get. And I got thinking about this because it's reminded me of God's messages for us. If God sends us messages, why don't we have the same reaction to those messages? I've got a slide. Can you bring up the slide for me, the first one? We've got 66 missed messages from God, and he's sending us messages. The 66 messages. Does anyone know what that is re- referring to? What's it referring to? Someone shout it out. 66 books in the Bible. Spot on. Great job. 66 books in the Bible. These messages, and for a lot of us, and I know I've been guilty of this, leaving God's messages unread. Why is it that when someone special to me leaves a message, I can't wait to answer it? I can't wait to see what it is. But when it comes to God, sometimes I can push it to the side. I'll get to that later. I'll I'll just seen it. And then I'll, I'll leave it. But I think that we need to actually approach the Bible a bit differently. A few weeks back, I did preach a message on, is the Bible the Word of God? And I talked about how it's been reliably transferred from the day it was written, the many books in the Bible, to where we are today, and how, the, the, how God has used this book so powerfully. And if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back on the YouTube. You should be able to find it on there. And I think you'll really enjoy it, if that's what you're into. And I, think, I was thinking there's three kinds of people here tonight. You got one, that... The first person says, well, I don't need to care about God's messages because I don't actually think that God actually wrote them. I don't think God has anything to do with them. They're not really from God. That's one sort of person. I encourage you to go back and look at that message and have a look at that, and I think that'll uh, really get you thinking a lot. There's a second person here that says, well, maybe God wrote some messages, but maybe they're not to me. Maybe they're not for me. Why would God want to talk to me? And think about this for a second, right? If God made you a person, we can all agree that, if God's real, he made you a person, and God himself is a person, and he made relationships, is there a good chance that God being a person and you being a person, that he would want to communicate with you somehow? There's actually a very good reason to think that God would want part of your life if he made you so. The other thing I was thinking is, if you get a letter in the mail with no addressee on it, doesn't say a name of anybody, what do you do? Do you just go, oh, I'll just leave it alone because I'm not sure who it's to? Or do you read it to find out? Well, I encourage those people to actually step in and read it to find out if it's really to you. Then there's the third type of person. And this is the person that I'm preaching to tonight. Maybe you believe that these are God's messages, 66 messages, but you're not sure 
how to read them. And you don't want to get it wrong. Or maybe you're a bit scared of what God's going to say. And tonight we're going to get into opening God's messages. Can I get my title slide? Here it is. Opening God's messages. That's what we're into tonight. And I really hope to be able to give you guys some insight and be able to encourage you to pick up this thing that has changed my life and has changed so many lives. More blood has been spilt because of this book than any other book in the world. And more lives have been sacrificed to defend the reliability of what we got in here. The Bible can seem daunting to read. And I'm sure you know what I mean if you've been a Christian long enough, that the Bible can seem like this book that you don't want to go too deep because uh, you might be worried about what you're going to read. Or you might think, I don't know where to start, so I'm just not going to start. And it can seem a bit daunting. I remember talking to a guy once at, at college, and he said that he was going to try and read the Bible in one month. The Bible's a massive book. Read it in one month. And I thought to myself, if I'm really a good Christian, should I be trying to do this, like this guy? Should I be trying to read the Bible in a month? Considering I'm actually a slow reader to, 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 to begin with, man, that would be a hard stretch for me. That would be massive. But I don't think that's actually the right approach to the Bible. I really love Mac, what she said. She said she finished her 90-day Bible plan in 270 days. Is that right? Great job, Mac. She shared that. Good on her for not having to conform to what someone else told her she should do. <laughs> and I talked to some people who, who, who say, I talked to a guy who said that he tries to read the Bible three times a day, every meal. And I'm like, man, how is that practical? That's so hard. And I even tried a few times when I worked at Coffee Club to bring my Bible and read it on my lunch break. And you know the weird looks I got? It was, it was quite funny. And most of the time, I'd be looking at the page, thinking about something else. And before I know it, I, hadn't even know, I haven't even realized what I read the last 20 minutes. And I got thinking, this is just not the right way to read the Bible. If this Bible is God's message to us, we're doing something wrong. Hands up, if honestly, you have ever felt like reading the Bible is a chore or homework. If you've ever felt like that, I felt like that. Thank you for being honest, guys. I appreciate it. Because I've certainly felt like that a lot. But I wanted to show you this scripture that really opened up my eyes in thinking about this. It's Psalm chapter 1. And it goes like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law... He meditates day and night. Wow. Can I honestly say that I delight in the law of the Lord? I'm not sure I can. I mean, delighting sounds like something that you really enjoy. I delight in chocolate. But do I uh, run to, to my Bible like I run to the pantry? I don't think I do. That was in the Old Testament. And then we see in the New Testament, Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 7, verse 22. He says, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I delight in it. I enjoy it. I want to read it. I want it to change me. And I got thinking about this, and I'd suggest to you 
tonight that perhaps we have been reading the Bible wrong. Perhaps we haven't been reading the Bible the way that the Bible was intended for us to read it. Now that could be a controversial statement. But hold on for a minute. You might think I'm totally off with the fairies tonight, but I encourage you to listen and hear me out, maybe learn something. Why else don't we delight in reading God's messages, just like you would your girlfriend or your boyfriend? Well, I was thinking about this, and you could compare reading the Bible to going on a diet. Think about this. Suppose I went on a diet, and I wanted to lose weight. I wanted to, to get built I wanted to have a six-pack. I wanted to look like Ethan. And I bought all the right protein shakes. I bought the Jenny Craig um, uh, low-fat food box. I bought a treadmill. I purchased a new treadmill. I'm going to use this treadmill. Um, I wear activewear every day. Activewear, activewear. Everywhere I go, I wear activewear. And I do all this. In fact, every single day I look over my diet to see what it says. But I don't do anything differently. If, am I going to see my body change to look like, more like Ethan's if I do not do what the diet says? If I don't let the diet change something about me? And I was thinking this works well. With the Bible, works the same way. I can read the Bible. I can put it on Instagram every week. I can uh, make sure that I set aside a time every day to read the Bible, make sure I look like a good Christian doing the right thing. But if I'm not letting the Bible change me by doing what it says, I'm not changing in any way. And I think, just like you wouldn't delight in a diet without seeing results, people who do not have any change of life when reading the Bible are not going to delight in God's Word. Does that make sense? Awesome. Thank you. You're so encouraging. Well, tonight, I've got some things that I'd love to show you. So, as I was just talking about the diet thing, I think James, in the, in the book of James, James gets right on this. And James know what he's, knows what he's talking about. James was a rabbi. And what's really cool about James, he was also the brother of Jesus Christ. And so when you read his book, you're thinking, oh, man, you would have been like so embarrassed when you realized your brother was the Messiah. <laughs> you, you doubted him as if you would. Well, James, he, he says something about this. Listen to this. In James chapter 1, 22, 25 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So James understands this analogy that I'm giving. It really came from him, not me, just so you know. And he uses this analogy of a mirror. What are mirrors for? Well, mirrors are for portraying 
your physical self or your physical health. Therefore, portraying your physical health. And I think what he was, he was giving the, uh, he was equating it to the Bible because the Bible reflects our spiritual health. And when you read the Bible, you begin to see that perhaps things in your life aren't quite as healthy as you thought they were. Perhaps your heart isn't really in the right place that it should be. And what he's saying is when you look at this mirror, the Bible, and you see where it puts you, I can still see you guys. That's really cool. Hey, everyone. When you look at the Word and it shows you things that ought to change and modify in your life, in your spiritual health, if you walk away and forget those things, doing nothing, then you're an idiot. I think that's what he's saying. <laughs> oh, who thought I'd get an applause for that? My primary school wife is saying, you can't say that. <laughs> it's a swear word. And, and James, I think, is really onto something here. And often in our world today, we have this thing with mirrors that is actually really unfortunate. A lot of young people, they compare themselves in the mirror and say, I want to change this, 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 this. They want to change so much about them. And I'm not talking about that tonight because God has actually made you who you are. God loves you and he wants the best for you. But when it comes to your spiritual health, God wants to build you into the man and woman of God that he planned for you from the beginning. And it has nothing to do with your physical appearance. It's about the heart, the state of the heart. And this first verse gives us the first of four tools I'm going to share with you tonight. Four tools. And these tools are going to be principles that are going to help us read the Bible and delight in God's Word and delight in opening God's messages. So this first one, we're calling the man in the mirror. Can you say man in the mirror? Can anyone give me a Michael Jackson? Fantastic. Great. Beautiful. Beautiful Solly. Getting carried away. I love it. This first tool for reading the Bible is to read the Bible and put it into action so that it changes us. If we don't use that first tool, the man in the mirror, then we're never going to delight in the law because we're never going to see it change us. We're never going to see our lives get any better. We're never going to put the diet to work. There's a second, a second uh, tool that I want to share with you, and this one is from Paul, and he gives us a clue to this one. I really like this. And so it's from, two, uh, it's from Romans 13, verse 10 to 11. He says this, The commandments, he's speaking to the Roman church, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, are summed up in this single rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, if you weren't sure, when we're talking about the law, when these guys in the Bible are talking about the law, they're usually referring to the beginning of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, because obviously 
He's not referring to what he's writing right now. Paul didn't even know that what he was writing was going to end up in the Bible. He's referring to what they had at the Bible at the time. And sometimes when they say law, they're also referring to the books like Psalms and the prophets. But usually they're just referring to the first five books of the Bible. And so when he's saying this, all of that stuff that's in there, like do not commit adultery, do not steal, all that stuff, that is there for this sole reason. He's kind of saying, if you do this, then you're going to follow all these rules anyway. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. That's really interesting. And this was an eye-opener to a lot of Jews who became Christians. Because in the Jewish law, the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of strange things that come up. Now, these seem pretty good to us, these rules. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder. Like they're, they're pretty good. I'm sure we can probably get on side with those ones. But there are some that are a bit stranger in the Old Testament. You see, God would actually tell the Hebrews, he'd give them laws like this. You're not to eat shrimp. It's actually true. It's in the Bible. And you're not to eat animals like pigs. Isn't that crazy? And you think to yourself, man, being Christian, does that mean I have to stop doing these things? Does that mean I have to put aside bacon? I can't do that. It's too big a sacrifice, God. Well, it's not too big a sacrifice. But that's not actually what we have to do. And we have to read the Bible in context. But this important point is for this reason. When God gave laws like do not eat shrimp or pig, those were for a reason. Those were because he loved Israel. It was a law of love. And if they followed his laws, they would actually, these laws would set them apart from the wicked nations that were near Israel. And God wanted them to be set apart because he never wanted them to end up like those wicked nations. Because of what? Because he loved them. So this second, this second tool I'm going to share with you tonight are the lenses of love. See that there? My, my lovely, generous nep- nephew, um, he offered me these tonight, little Jethro. They only fit him because he's the size of a, size of a builder bear. It's true. And, and these lenses of love, they will help us read the Bible because there are some confusing passages in the Bible. And there are some things in the, that were written a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, more than that, that can seem very confusing to our eyes. And one thing we've got to remember is what Paul said there, the love is the fulfillment of the law. So if we read it through the lenses of love, then we will read it the way God intended us to understand why he did these things. Because the Bible's full of a lot of controversial things. Do you know God actually kills people in the Bible? It's true. There's times where the ground opens up and swallows people because they were wicked and God wanted to punish them. The Bible has lots of things like this. And I'm not the type of preacher to get up and try and hide those things from you. Because I love justice and I love the way God moves in the Bible but these lenses of love our second tool are going to help us to read it through those lenses there are many people who have read the Bible with the intention of trying to show how wicked and barbaric it is and that's because they're missing this and they don't realize that God put these laws in here for a reason and it's we have to look back and see why 
but it's always because God loved his people. It's always out of love. So that's our lenses of love. You got that? Second, that's our second one. Our third one. Our third one. This uh, came to me as I was reading um, an interesting passage. I'm going to share with you in a second. But this, uh, this tool is, I'm going to call it, piece of the puzzle. Everyone say, piece of the puzzle. Can you say that? Piece of the puzzle. And that's piece the way that you'd expect it to be spelled. Piece of the puzzle. I've got a puzzle here. And who knows that if I were to take one piece of the puzzle, there we are. If I were to show you one piece of the puzzle, I very much doubt that you could tell me what the puzzle's about if you couldn't see the picture in the front already. You wouldn't understand it. And, and sometimes the Bible's the same way. If you take one bit of the big Bible, 66 books written over 1,400 years, you take one bit of it and you try and understand this without knowing any of anything else about the Bible, then it can be like seeing a piece of the sky and trying to work out what picture it is. Yeah? And so this third tool, we're calling piece of the puzzle, and just so you know that this isn't unbiblical, I've actually got an example in the Bible where Jesus uses this. He doesn't call it piece of the puzzle. I'm putting a name to it, putting a name to all these ones. They're, they're, they're not original things, but I'm putting original names to them, okay? And in, in Matthew 19, chapter, um, well, sorry, Matthew chapter 19, it's like verse 3 to 9, Jesus is there with some Pharisees, and some Pharisees come up to him, and they um, try and trick him. They try and question him. They say, is it legal, is it right for a man to be able to divorce his wife for any and all reasons? Jesus kind of says no. And then they say, well, why did Moses give us the certificate of divorce to be able to send wives away? And Jesus answers like this. He looks at what they were talking about in the proper context. He looks a thousand years back when Moses actually talked about this. He goes back and he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. He goes back to the beginning. He thinks about what happened at the beginning. God created Adam and Eve, and they were made for each other, and they were never made to be separated. And he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And what Jesus does there is he says, well, Pharisees, you're taking a piece of the puzzle from Moses and you don't even know what the puzzle says. But I, Jesus, because Jesus knows everything, know that one piece of the puzzle where it fits in the big picture. And although Moses gave you a certificate of divorce to divorce a wife, he did that because your hearts were hard. Because in the beginning, the right thing was when a man and a woman brought together, they should not be separated because they were made one flesh. And Jesus gave them the piece of the puzzle that they needed, and he gave them the answer. And when we read Scripture, it's important for us to understand where we are in the big story because that's what this Bible is. It's a big story. It's a true story, and we've got to understand where we are. So you've got parts in the Bible that are, as we covered last time I spoke, parts that are poetry, parts that are history, Parts that are prophecy, parts that are apocalyptic, 
parts that are um, biographies, parts that are letters written to churches, parts that are um, pastoral letters written to individuals. And it's very important for you to understand where you are in the big picture because otherwise you could get lost and think that you're in Mordor when really you're on the beach. Don't know where that was going. So that's our third rule. That's our third tool. We're going to use that a bit later. And our fourth tool, and this one is my favorite, this tool is pay attention. Time machine. Time machine. My bad, I couldn't get a stand up. This is our time machine, okay? This fourth rule is the time machine. As you can see, if I touch the other sides of these things together, I'll go wherever, I, whatever pace and time I want to go. Remember, spark plugs are dangerous. I won't, I won't fill around with those. This is our time machine, and a time machine is going to help us with our next point, our next tool. So the time machine tool teaches us to go back to the time, the place, and the people that the text is talking about. I've often... Um, I've heard this analogy that if you ask for fast food in Australia, someone will point to Macca's or KFC. If you ask for it in the developing world, they'll point to a um, cat. Fast food. Uh, that's probably pretty mean. You didn't like that? So it, it's, we need to understand the culture of the place we're in. Guys, I, I love cats. <laughs> I love cats. I would never do that. Gosh. In, in fact, in the Bible, they do this all the time. He's still laughing. Come on, guys, get over that, get over that bridge. We're into the, the next section here. In the Bible, they do this all the time. In fact, I love the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is writing to Gentiles, meaning anyone other than the Jews. And he helps the Gentiles understand Jesus' life and his culture and the people that he's around and the, the ceremonies, festivals that they have by explaining them in pretty good detail. And he does that because they didn't know everything about the Jewish culture. And, and he wasn't a Jew either. He was a Greek. But he learned a bit about the Jewish culture and he taught them about it. And he helped put them in the place where they were, understand who was, who was where, what what it was like, the place, places they were in, and he gives, he uses the time machine to take these people there, even though it was kind of only a few years later. He still did this, and I think this is really practical for us to use the time machine. An example of this would be going back um, and seeing the state of the Israelites. Now, you read things about the Israelites in the Old Testament, and you might think, what the heck's going on there? Well, if we actually look at the cultures that developed around 1400 BC, we get a good idea of what Israel would have been like in the neighboring nations near Israel. Uh, for example, Israel, they were likely a wandering nation most of the time. So they would have had tents and they would have had their cattle on the move 
and um, even their even their uh, their sacred place they had so that they could pick it up and move it somewhere else. And that's important for us to know because sometimes we might think, why would the Israelites do it this way? And we can see by looking back in time what was going on. But it's also important for us to know, look back and see who the book is addressed to. John Walton says something pretty awesome. He says, the Bible wasn't written to you. The Bible was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. Isn't that interesting? And the, the fact is that no matter how old you are tonight, Paul didn't know who you were. So he couldn't have written a letter to you. But at the beginning of Paul's letters, he writes to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Rome. He writes to these people. And he writes to these churches. And in, in other cases, they're writing to people. I said before, Luke wrote to Gentiles. And when we read it, this Bible wasn't actually written for someone in the 21st century to pick up and goes, oh, that applies to me and my iPhone habits. Oh, that, 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 that's, he's talking about the HSC right there. I can, I can tell Jesus is really in that zone. No, he's speaking about things that are happening right there. And so that fourth tool, time machine, is for that purpose, for us to go back and see what's happening in the time. I loved watching horrible histories growing up. Anyone else love that show? And I loved how they showed you in detail the way that things were. How in, in, in the city of France during the 1800s, they would have toilets on a second level and, and the toilets had no plumbing and they just fall on the street. I thought it was so funny. And... That's horrible histories, but they, they take you back there to be there. And when we use this time travel, this fourth tool, I want us to be able to go back and look at where we are. Now, let's try using these four tools in our Bible for some really frequently used verses to try and get what's going on. And what I'm actually going to do, if we have time, I'm going to pick um, someone to suggest a verse in the Bible, maybe something that you've had trouble understanding or maybe something that you just like to, to get to go. So we're doing this together. It's like a conversation. I'm going to go through three and then at the end, if you've got time, I'm going to pick someone and, and we'll see whether we can go through a fourth one together using these tools to understand it. Is that cool? So maybe try and think of one. Don't just pull a random one out of the hat and no one say Enoch. Um, it's, not, it's not a book of the Bible. Okay, so the first one is a really common one. It's Philippians 4.13. You would have heard this one, and I'm sure with your eyes closed, most of you could say it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Awesome. How is this verse normally used in context? Well, people often use it like this. I can win this game of footy. I can pass this test. I can finish this family-sized pizza. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. I remember eating a family pizza with a friend and he said, Lord, give me strength because I do not have wisdom. <laughs> I clearly do not have wisdom. Well, it was great. Is this the right context to use this verse? Well, it's time to use our time machine to see. Let's go back in time, everyone. Who is writing this? Who are they writing to? Where are they and why are they writing so who? The first who? Who's writing this? Anyone, anyone want to say? Who wrote this? Paul. Well, good job. And who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee. 
which meant he, he opposed Jesus. And he got converted at some time in his life where he came face to face with the risen Jesus. And it radically changed his life. He went from persecuting and killing Christians to now being the ambassador for the Christian theology. And he would go and preach. He would plant churches wherever he went. So we've got Paul. We're thinking about Paul. This is not just some priest. This guy was the real deal. Who's he writing to? He's writing to, and um, it's actually in the very first verse of Philippians, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, God's holy people at Philippi, or God's church at Philippi. He's writing to a church. And where is he writing from? Does anyone know this? Jail. Good job. He's writing from prison in Rome. Paul is in Rome. Now, he doesn't actually say he's in Rome in uh, Philippians, but I know that because I've read um, Acts and I've read a few other books and they, they give me those details. But he's writing um, from chains. He says he's in chains. He says it in verse um, uh, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. He says, um, I'm writing this um, from my chains. And he's like, can you see... Can't you see how passionate I am for the gospel? And we also need to look at the verse that comes just before this. In fact, we should never take one verse on the Bible by itself and attempt to learn something from it. We should always read the Bible in its context. The book of Philippians is four chapters. You could read it slowly and finish it in 20 minutes. But the book of Philippians, um, the chapter that comes before it, chapter, verse 12, sorry, the verse comes before it, says, says this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, this gives us a whole different light and understanding of what's going on. I can then do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul, he's writing from chains. He's a long way away from this church. This church is having hardships of its own. And it's, he's saying, I have learned the secret to be content in everything. And, I, and, and the way I do this is by knowing that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Really, a more literal translation would probably be, I can endure anything through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this is to help us go back with our time machine. Now we're going to apply a second tool. Anyone want to guess what I'm going to apply now? Man in the mirror. Now we're going to apply the man in the mirror. We're just doing two tools for this one. So now I understand the context of what's going on in this verse. I understand where it's coming from. I understand who wrote it. And I understand what he's saying. But now, unless I apply this to my life, I'm like that idiot James is talking about. So... I'm going to look in the mirror for a second. Look at my spiritual self. Am I content in every situation and knowing that Christ is enough for me? Think about this. How often do you complain about the school you go to, the job you work at, the family you have, the, uh, um, the way your sports team's going? Sorry, anyone who is going for anyone other than Panthers. And how often do you complain about these things and go, oh, if only it was different, if only it was changed. But then we have Paul presenting us an example saying, even in chains, I am satisfied. I'm content because 
Jesus lives in me. He is my strength. And so to apply this to the man in the mirror, that's me, I'm no, I'm, I, sh, I better check what I, my heart when, when things aren't going my way. Am I just going to quit another job? Am I just want to move schools? Am I just want to get a new friendship group? Or, or am I actually content first in Jesus? This doesn't mean that I never change anything in my life. But it means for the things that I can't change, they're out of my hand. Am I content in God? Is he my first? Am I giving him my first, my worship? Now that is our first verse. You see how there was quite a different message from that verse than you might have first thought. It's got nothing to do with eating pizza. (laughs) Let's look at another very popular one. This one's Jeremiah 29.11. You guys love this one. I love this one. I still say this one to myself all the time when I'm feeling low. It's powerful. It is, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. How do we often hear this scripture used? Well, always on Instagram captions for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why. I'm not on Insta. I don't know what I'm doing when I leave school, but I know the plans you have for me. Or more seriously, when you lose someone in life, oh, but I know the plans God has for me. Plans to prosper me, not to harm me. Plans to give me a hope in the future. Well, the tool we're actually going to use for this one is the piece of the puzzle. This comes from Jeremiah. Does anyone know what we would call the book of Jeremiah in a category? It's Old Testament, yes, and it is a prophet. It's one of the prophets. Jeremiah is actually writing from, it's about 600 BC. Um, It's hard to to know that unless you've gone into a bit of studies, but you can get an idea of where it fits in the Bible story by looking even at your just page of contents. You have the beginning of the Bible, God created the earth, the Israelites, moved through Egypt, etc. We get through some kings, Bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king. Then we get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is prophesying. And he's actually prophesying during the Babylonian captivity. And these uh, people, um, the Israelites, have been in captivity in Babylon. And so uh, we see that he's now speaking at a time before Jesus has come to a nation of people in captivity. That's important. Now we use time machine. Again, everyone, go back in time, quick. Who, where, why, who, who, who and who too. So this is God speaking through Jeremiah, the prophet. And we see this in verse 4. So firstly, this isn't just to everybody. Apparently, it's not to everybody. It actually says this in, in verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So he's not saying to everyone. Isn't that interesting? Does that mean that I just have to throw it out? No, it doesn't mean that, as you're about to see. Where are they? As I said before, they're in captivity. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. They, um, the masters in Babylon, they're treating them bad. They're, they're keeping them locked up. They don't have the freedom they want. Not looking good. And why? Why, why, oh why does Jeremiah, well, why does God through Jeremiah say this? And he says this for a re- good reason. So what he actually is talking about, He says, this is a message from God to you. And he's saying it to the Israelites. He's saying, Israelites, while you're in captivity, we see this by reading the whole chapter, while you're in captivity, 
you can settle down. Have children. Don't listen to the false prophets who are telling you to have unrest, to rebel against the leaders here. Because, and then it gets to this part, I, have, uh, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So what we're seeing here is God is saying, hey, Israel, I put you in exile. I put you in exile. He says that for a reason. I want you to settle down. Live your life. And I am going to send a hope. I am going to rescue you. But you've got to be patient. This is what he's saying. An important part of this is knowing it's before Jesus. So when we actually read this, plans to give you a hope and a future. This is actually an indirect prophecy about Jesus. He is telling the Israelites, hey, you keep going in and out of slavery. You keep going in and out of idolatry, in and out of exile. Well, I am sending a hope and a future. And in the immediate sense, he does rescue Israel 70 years later. But in the long-term sense, he sends Jesus to rescue his people for once, once and for all. And so let's use the man in the mirror and have a look at this. So with all that in, in mind, this could help us understand what this scripture is really about. So I know what this meant to them, but what does it mean to me? It means this. God was faithful to Israel, even though they rebelled and turned from him. And I know that he'll be faithful to me because he's faithful to people. He punished Israel for their own good. A lot of people try to not say that God punishes people, but he does. He punished them for their own good. And sometimes God will put me through hard times, punish me for my own good. Isn't that hard to think about? And lastly, the hope that they had in the future, Jesus, I can look back and have hope that Jesus, what he did on the cross, is sufficient for me. We seem to be running out of time. I've got one more. And uh, this one is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And you've all heard this one before. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you. How do we often hear this one? Clean your room. Don't speak to me like that. Honor your mother and father. Or you should obey your parents. You should obey your parents. In fact, some translations I feel like have uh, poorly written, obey your father and mother. And some people can, can think, why would I want to obey or honor a mother and father that treats me horribly? Why would I want to honor my mother and father when they're not worthy of honor? And this happens in life. And unfortunately, some parents, they don't do a great job. And parenting's hard, I've heard. But what does this scripture mean? And in this scripture, we're actually going to put this love, these lenses of love to use. Because I'm sure that what God is saying is not this. Because I've got the lenses of love on, I know God is not saying, you should let your parents control your life. You should let your parents pick on you no matter how much they want. You should let your parents uh, um, do stupid stuff and uh, you just need to go along with it. 
Um, you should just do whatever your parents say, even when you know that it's wrong. I'm sure that that is not a law that God would ever impose on people. But if we look at this scripture through the lens of love, we can see it a bit differently. You see, God gave this command for a purpose. He gave this command because he wanted to protect families. And he wanted to raise up great families in Israel that were unlike other families and nations around them. He said, honor your father and mother. And this doesn't necessarily mean, hear this out, this doesn't necessarily mean to agree with them on everything. It doesn't necessarily mean to um, love all the choices they make. But what does it mean? I think it means this. I think it means to seek peace in our relationship with our parents. To honor them, not because of the person they are necessarily, but because of the position they have in our life. There's a big difference there. I'm going to honor them because they're in the space of mum and dad. And um, because part of being God's people is bringing peace to our family and seeking good relations with them, this is what it looks like through the lenses of love. It's part of our job honoring our parents helps spread peace in our families. And you might be here and your family might not be Christian. Um, they might mock your Christianity. They might think that you're an idiot. They might even tell you don't go to church, things like that. Does that mean that all of a sudden we should stop honoring our parents? Maybe we disagree with our parents and maybe it's okay to disagree with our parents. But how do we still honor them in that case? We honor them by trying to keep the peace. Oh, what have I done? I've skipped the man in the mirror. We're back. In, we're in the man of the mirror. Now we understand what was going on. We're applying this to ourselves. So now I know what God means by honoring your father and mother. Do I really have an excuse with the way I treat my parents? Because although my parents might be horrible to me, I need to love them and try to be peacekeepers. So I might wash the dishes without being asked. In fact, I might wash them dishes so good that mum goes, what has happened to my son that he did this so happily and he actually honoured me? And you might change your mum's heart by doing stuff like that. I believe that's what it means to honour them. It also might mean this, and I actually know a young man who did something similar to this. A young man who he uh, had younger siblings with him. He was with his, his mum, his single mum, and his mother was doing drugs. And his mother was having a really bad episode. And he did, um, this young man I think is very brave, he took his, his younger siblings and he left. And he went to find a relative to stay with. And I think what he did was honor his mum by not letting his siblings see what was going on with his mum. And I think that's a very honorable thing to do. Even if his mother would have disagreed with his decision, he showed her honor. And I think that's what this scripture is really about. It's not about loving your parents' decisions, but you should still love them like Jesus does. So we've put these four to good use. And unless we put these to use, I don't think we'll ever delight in the law of the Lord. Ever delight like Jesus, uh, like, like Paul and David spoke about. I delight in the law of the Lord. So if you've never read the Bible before, what are you waiting for? You're always going to be too busy. So 
Find some time in your busy schedule, I suggest, when you're not super tired and falling asleep. And open up the Bible. There's a lot of great books to start with, but I wouldn't recommend every single book to start with because some of them, you need to understand the context. You understand what's going on. You could start with the very first books, Genesis and Exodus. They're very interesting. I suggest you start with the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, any of those. There's the biographies of Jesus, and they're really powerful. There's also some awesome stories that I think you should read if you're new to the Bible. Read Jonah. That's really cool. Read the book of Esther. She's an incredible woman. Read um, the letter to the Galatians because Paul's super angry and I love hearing him rage and it's so cool. Or read, if you like, um, if you like going deep, read the book of Romans where Paul gives uh, the greatest sermon, I think, in the Bible and he's just speaking to the Roman church. Get started somewhere. But the most important thing, and I hope if anything else you walk away with this, to look at the man in the mirror or look at the woman in the mirror each time you read the Bible and go, how is God showing me that i got to change? How have I got to change my life? How have I got to put this stuff into practice? Because I think when we start to put this stuff into practice, if like we put Philippians 4.13 truly into practice, then we're going to be content no matter what the situation. And we're going to be like, man, my life's actually not so bad. I love the law of the Lord because it has helped me to do this. Or maybe Jeremiah, you might think now, now that you've applied this in your life, you might think I might be going through a really rough time, but I can actually see that God could be using this for good. And I can look back and see what Jesus has done for me and the hope I have. I love the law of the Lord because it has encouraged me like this. It's helped me to see life differently. Or maybe you start to see that your relationship with your parents is getting better because you start applying the law of the Lord. You start applying what it really says on your parents. And then there starts to be peace in your house where there wasn't peace. And this just would drive you to love the law of the Lord because you go, the law of the Lord, the Bible, has changed my family. It's changed my life. So I love it. And I think this is what Paul was on about. And this is what David was on about. Because God's word is living. It is life. Now, I said, I said uh, the other week, I said, the Bible is such an ancient document, yet it is so relevant for today. That is why it's called living. That is why it's called the living word of God, because it's so powerful for us. Now, the book I'd recommend going into is Proverbs. Proverbs is a, a, a king telling his son how to live. I think it's pretty cool. He's King Solomon, very wise man. He's got these proverbs that you can live by. In fact, there's 31 of them. So if you started on December 1st, you could read one proverb a day, one chapter, and get through them by the end of the year. I think that's really cool. And I'll just leave you with this scripture. I only read half before. It goes like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, Stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the next part. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf never withers. Whatever he does prospers. And this is a profound scripture. It's saying, and I, as I, be, I, I 
tried I memorized this whole whole um, chapter because I wanted this to to not just be a thing that I remember when I look at the word, but every night and every day I remember this thing. I think memorizing the Bible has uh, totally uh, been underestimated. I think we've got to bring it back in because it's really powerful. It's like having it written in your mind. Memorize the word of the Lord and you'll you'll be like a tree planted beside streams of living water. You'll yield fruit in the right season, meaning your life's going to be prosperous. Whatever he does prospers. Whatever you do prospers. Whatever she does prospers. And I think if we as a church could get behind this, if we could let the Bible be like a mirror to our spiritual souls and let us be transformed, then we would be truly the hands and feet of Jesus. Our lives would never be the same. You would live a life radical for God. Do you think that you're ready for this? Are you ready for this church? Can you step into this? I didn't have time to quite get to anyone's suggestions, but I encourage you to go home, find a scripture that that you've always thought about, read the context, use these four tools, and see what God's doing, what God wants to change in your life. This Bible is going to change your life. I'm really excited for it. Well, let me pray for you guys. And then uh, we'll do a song. So, Ben, you can hop up. Let me pray for you. And then uh, I'll, I'll let us go. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here. Thank you, Lord, for ministering over this place. And thank you for your word that you gave for us, the messages you sent us. Thank you that you want to have a relationship with us. You want to communicate with us. Man, I'm not worthy of that. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be my reflection, to take my sin away. So now, as I look in the mirror, I see not myself, but I see the righteous Jesus Christ who bore my sin. And thank you that you love us, Lord. Thank you that you call us to live a life set apart, Let a life that is awesome. Let it live a life that is abundant. Let a life that has a hope and a future. We pray that you would make our word on fire. You would make our our Bible the most important time of the day as we go to be there with you. We pray your peace over this weekend and uh, we thank you for your love. Amen.